you probably remember Standing Rock. A couple years ago, thousands of people gathered on the North Dakota prairie to stop an oil pipeline. They camped out for months through a blizzard and temperatures that hit 30 below. They invoked ancestral rights to the land. They clashed with law enforcement. Shot us, you tased us, broke our bones. They drew international attention. Pope Francis said that indigenous cultures have the right to defend their ancestral relationship to the earth. And when it comes to stopping the pipeline, they lost. Today, around a half million barrels of oil flow through that pipeline every day, right next to the Standing Rock protest camp. But the battle over pipelines didn't end there. It's spreading. I'm Dan Crocker. I'm a reporter for Minnesota Public Radio News. And this past winter, a little over a year after Standing Rock, I was sitting in my office in Duluth, Minnesota, when I noticed police and fire trucks on the street outside. It's kind of my job to check this stuff out. So I grabbed my recorder. Check, check, check. A bunch of people were gathered in a hallway outside the entrance to a bank that's investing in pipeline companies. Climate change is real. First, I saw a guy with one of those bike U-locks cinched around his neck, locked to the gate of the bank. We may look dramatic, but we are the sane ones here. We're trying to work toward a livable future for our children and grandchildren. If you care enough, you will stick your neck out. And here he was, literally sticking his neck out in through a bike lock. I've covered a lot of protests, but that was pretty crazy to see. And then I saw another guy. He was sitting on the floor with his right arm inside a metal tube that was locked to the gate in a way that was going to make it very hard for police to cut him out. Check, check, check. Do you mind introducing yourself for me? Ernesto Burbank. Where are you from? I'm from uh, Chinle, Arizona. Are you really? Yes. That blew me away. Chinle is on the Navajo Nation. That's 1,600 miles away. Tell me, when did you come up here? Uh, two days ago. Why'd you come up? Um, to give our uh, relatives support and for everything that's going on throughout the whole nation. Ernesto had driven up from Arizona in the dead of winter to fight another oil pipeline. It's really just destroying our, our earth, you know, our mother, what we consider our mother earth, you know, and it's destroying her and she's crying out with the climate changes. Eventually, the police cut Ernesto free. They escorted him out, one arm still in that yellow pipe held high over his head. And I couldn't stop thinking. Here is this guy who came all the way to Duluth, Minnesota, a little city on the shores of Lake Superior two and a half hours north of Minneapolis, in temperatures barely above zero, to willingly go to jail to stop an oil pipeline. It really drove home to me that something important is happening. What started at Standing Rock, it's not over. And it's not just Minnesota. Protests over oil and gas pipelines are happening all over now. In Pennsylvania. Well, welcome back, everyone. Passionate pipeline protesters all gathered in... In West Virginia. Protesters who have been camping in trees. Louisiana. And I want you to do whatever you can wherever you are. In British Columbia. I say climate, you say justice, climate! Justice! All right, let's do this, folks. Let's line up. We're going to get this thing going. People are putting their lives on hold to fight these things. They're moving to camps in the woods for months at a time. They're climbing trees, chaining themselves to bulldozers, to banks, even right outside my office in sleepy downtown Duluth. So what's going on? Why is there suddenly this dramatic conflict around pipelines? 
This is Rivers of Oil. It's a podcast from Minnesota Public Radio about the oil pipelines that flow beneath our feet and how those pipelines are now at the forefront of an epic tug of war between our reliance on oil and the risk that oil poses to the future of our world. We'll explore that clash and track how pipelines have become such a powerful symbol and potent target. And by taking a close look at the forces at work here, hopefully we'll make you think a little more about the role we all play in this story. Because to be honest, I never really thought much about the role oil plays in my own life until I started working on this. The closest I get to oil is when I put gas in my car. But even then, I don't see it. And I certainly don't see the vast network of pipes and refineries and tanks and trucks that supply that gas. For the most part, all that stuff fits out of sight, out of mind. And the irony of that is that everything about oil is epic in scale. I mean, it's massive. Refineries are like cities unto themselves. And pipelines, they're everywhere. Two and a half million miles of them. They form a web under our feet, our rivers, our roads. We've been building that web since the 1860s and building more all the time. Until just recently, it was pretty easy for companies to get new pipelines built. I talked to a journalist named Chris Turner about that. And he said, it's hard to imagine now, but pipelines just didn't used to be controversial. It was just a non-issue on any sort of national or international scale a decade ago. It is really interesting. I saw a quote recently from the Enbridge CEO basically saying something to the effect of, you know, in the old days, and I think when he meant the old days, he meant like what you're talking about like 10 years ago. Yeah, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, that we used to just show up with a map, and that was pretty much it. And there was this very much kind of, you know, we're here to do the pipeline now, get out of our way kind of attitude. That was the status quo. That, that, you know, this is essential energy infrastructure. We're going to build it. We decided this is where it goes. But it's not that easy anymore. Today, pretty much every major pipeline proposal is met with protest. At Standing Rock, the protest left people injured and communities bitterly divided. The bill for all the law enforcement exceeded $40 million. And now the battle over those pipelines, with all its costs and chaos, looks to be headed for Minnesota. This is the next place where this simmering tension around pipelines could explode. The fight is about a boring-sounding project called Line 3. The Canadian company Enbridge wants to replace an existing oil pipeline with a new one. The new line could carry nearly twice as much oil, including heavier crude that the line can't carry in its current state. And it would follow a new route through northern Minnesota. This is the pipeline, this Line 3, that had a guy sticking his neck through a bike lock that brought Ernesto Burbank 1,600 miles from Arizona. People are threatening to make northern Minnesota the next standing rock if the state approves Line 3. They're already setting up camps, anticipating a fight. And county sheriff's offices are also making plans for how to deal with potential protests. So now you know where we could be headed. But to understand how we got here, to understand why pipelines have become such a flashpoint, we need to take a step back, a big step back. Because we wouldn't need all these pipelines if there weren't a whole lot of people consuming all that oil. And here at the outset, it's worth underlining what may seem like an obvious point. Though the oil has been sitting in the ground for eons, this dependence has only taken root in about the last hundred years with the introduction of the automobile. There's nothing like a Model T. Our love affair with oil started when Henry Ford began mass-producing the Model T. Before that, oil was mostly used for lighting. 
By the time production ended in the mid-1920s, 15 million tin Lizzie's had been sold. No longer was gasoline destined to be a useless byproduct. Mass-produced vehicles would change everything about daily life. Instead, with the swift popularity of the automobile, gasoline quickly assumed the position of prime demand. In the quarter century after 1900, American oil production jumped tenfold, and things really took off after World War II. Riding along in my automobile, my baby beside me at the wheel. By the mid-1950s, the car was king. In books, movies, and popular song, it came to represent freedom, the American dream. Through petroleum, Americans now travel with efficient economical power, while the complex machinery that carries them is protected and lubricated with oil. Oil production in the U.S. alone exceeded 2 billion barrels a year. We were slurping it up. Then, fast forward another 20 years. Oh my God, I love that song. It's the late 70s, and we still love our cars. But faced with a couple of oil crises, Americans for the first time start to grapple with our addiction to oil. With the exception of preventing war, this is the greatest challenge that our country will face during our lifetime. Jimmy Carter famously put on a sweater and urged Americans to turn down the heat. But even when prices spiked and a president guilted us into conserving energy, we still didn't curb our oil addiction for long. By the mid-80s, oil consumption was on the way up again. And it's not just in our gas tanks. Oil is everywhere. In plastics, rubber, makeup, even nylons. You're riding your bike? It's in your tires. And definitely in the asphalt you're riding on. It's hard to avoid. Our appetite for oil has pushed us to find extraordinary ways to get more oil out of the ground. We've already pumped a lot of the oil that's easy to find, that's cheap to access. Now, we're drilling deeper and deeper. The world's deepest oil well is 40,000 feet deep. Mount Everest isn't even 30,000 feet tall. We're also drilling sideways now. Horizontal drilling, combined with fracking, has unlocked all kinds of new oil in places like Pennsylvania and South Dakota and Texas. And we've also gone to incredible lengths to extract more oil in Canada. This is where Line 3 comes in. Line 3, the pipeline that could bring a massive protest to Minnesota. It could carry more than 30 million gallons of oil a day from the tar sands region of Alberta. And the story of how we finally managed to squeeze oil out of the tar sands shows just how far we're willing to go to satisfy our demand for oil. Because that oil is really far away, and it takes a lot of energy to produce it. And to help tell that story, we called up this guy. My name is Bert Mackay. Uh, you will hear uh, a bit of Scots coming out. Hopefully you can interpret that. Bert moved from Scotland to Canada in 1966, a decade before Jimmy Carter admonished us to start wearing sweaters. And he took a job at the very first oil sands plant. Not knowing what I was getting into, but then nobody else knew either. So I was in a common company there. Alberta has one of the largest deposits of oil-soaked sand in the world. We're talking over 150 billion barrels of oil. But you can't just drill into the ground and out it comes. It's worthless when it's mixed in with the sand. For a long time, people in Canada had tried and failed to separate that oil, called bitumen, from those tiny grains of sand. But finally, engineers thought they had figured it out. 
an American oil magnate named J. Howard Pugh bankrolled that first oil sands plant where Burt worked. His company was called Sun Oil. And when they were building the plant, Pugh came to check on its progress. And he did something that nobody had ever seen before. You have to realize Pew was one of the richest men in North America. The Pew Charitable Trust, that's because of his family. He bent down to the oil sands uh, deposit and he picked up a thumbnail of the bitumen off the floor of the mine and he tasted it. Now, everybody was horrified about this. They all jumped attention think, gee, you know, maybe that long trip to Alberta maybe has affected them some way. No, no, he was an old oil man. So he just simply tasted, then he, you know, spat out, obviously. But um, he just smiled. And then, in 1967, they were ready for the plant's grand opening. Yeah, that was a, that was a very memorable day, yes. I'll tell you why. Okay, let me go back to the beginning. September 30th was the day. The airport had the most planes ever uh, arriving that day. Both jets and conventional aircraft came in. 30 or more. From all over Canada in the U.S. For this was the beginning of a big day. The occasion was the dedication of the plant at Tar Island. Former Alberta Premier Ernest Manning addressed the crowd. We are gathered here for this ceremony to officially open this gigantic complex which for the first time will tap commercially the vast supply of oil that until now has remained locked in the silent depths of these Athabasca tar sands. But the process of unlocking that oil from the tar sands was not easy, because the thing is, it's nothing like the oil you're imagining. We actually ordered some of it on the Internet. Producer Julie Seipel is with me to check out this stuff. First, we opened the jar of oil mixed with the sand, the stuff Pew scooped up and tasted. Okay, you ready, Julie? Yeah. Ooh. So this is like... Ground coffee or something. Yeah, it's like this thick... Oh, no, it's way harder than coffee. Oh, my gosh. So when I think of oil that I pour into my car, this is so not like that. So what I want to try is squeezing it. Like you squeeze... So there's oil in there, but you squeeze this... Oh, my gosh, it's so sticky. It's sticking to my hand. And there's no liquid that comes out. They also sent us a jar of the bitumen after it had been separated out from the sand. Check this out. (laughs) Oh, you're right. It doesn't pour. I thought we were going to destroy the studio. So I'm turning a a jar of oil upside down in a fancy radio studio, and it's barely moving. It's not even coming out of the jar. It's starting to move. It's It's exactly like molasses. It is. It's like really slow molasses. Do you want to touch it? Yeah. Oh, it's like silly putty. So this is the black gold they talk about up in Alberta. And that black gold was causing Bert and his friends all sorts of trouble. The thing to remember is that this was a uniquely new process. Nobody had done that before. It was the first time. And there were a lot of naysayers. Sun Oil, the company bankrolling the project, was criticized for buying up moose pasture in the far north. The plant was named Great Canadian Oil Sands, but skeptics had some fun with the acronym. They called it Gone Crazy Over Sand, or Great Clouds of Steam, because people were still striking huge reserves of conventional oil. Even a lot of Sun Oil executives thought the company was wasting time and money. 
we were fighting the, the laws of physics and chemistry in this plant. And the first thing they discovered was how fast equipment could wear out. Since they couldn't pump the bitumen out of the ground, like conventional oil, they had to dig it out. It took two tons of oil sand just to make one barrel of oil. They used enormous machines the length of a football field, equipped with what looks almost like a giant Ferris wheel, 10 stories tall, with buckets with giant metal teeth to dig into the earth. And these, each of those teeth, uh, I'll tell you, nobody could lift them. They, you know, they, we had to use forklifts to lift those giant uh, teeth. They were, they were heavier than a Volkswagen. And those giant teeth proved to be a giant problem. Simply put, uh, you're digging sand. So literally, the, the sand were wearing out the teeth right down to the point where there's no teeth left. They had to change the teeth every two days. And each machine had hundreds of those teeth. So I think we eventually got uh, teeth that were reinforced with tungsten carbide that went, instead of 48 hours, they went to nine days, I believe. So riddle number one, solved. But that was just the first of many challenges. Don't forget your ambient temperatures in Fort Murray in the wintertime were about 40 to 50 degrees below zero. Goodness so that gracious. Only, not only froze people, but it froze equipment. He's talking Celsius, but that's still really cold. And what they had drawn up on paper, it didn't work when it was that cold. In summer, when the bitumen warmed up, brought a whole new set of problems. Remember that oil we ordered from Alberta? It was like molasses, slow and sticky. So you can just imagine what it did to equipment at the mine. It stuck to everything, like the conveyor belts that carried it from the mine to the processing plant. Other problems popped up at just about every step in the process. But each time, Bert and his pals would hunker down in a hotel room to find a fix. Some of them went on for seven days, you know, where we papered the walls with flip charts. But eventually we'd come up with a solution. Bert worked at the plant for almost three decades. He's proud of what they accomplished. But in those early days, even when they were solving all those problems, they still weren't making any money. In fact, it took years to make a profit. And even then, it still wasn't clear they were going to succeed. In the early 90s, these companies were seriously debating whether they should just basically you know, kind of cut their losses, close up shop and go home. That's Chris Turner again. He's a journalist in Calgary who recently wrote a book about the oil sands. It's called The Patch. There was this sense in Fort McMurray, that's the town that's kind of the center of the oil sands, that things might not end the way J. Howard Pugh and Burt Mackay had hoped they would. It felt like, even though, you know, these are companies with global reach and, you know, the rest of it, the attitude on the ground in Fort McMurray and, and to some degree here in Calgary as well was, you know, we are this scrappy underdog that no one believes in. But they kept at it. Throughout the 90s and early 2000s, they brought in people with experience working in mines rather than oil fields. They had the biggest trucks in the world built specifically for the oil sands. Then they got the government to change tax policy to encourage investment. And they figured out a whole new process to get at the bitumen that was too deep to mine by injecting steam underground, melting it, and pumping it to the surface. But the main thing that changed? The price of oil. It skyrocketed. Soaring fuel prices may have consumers seeing red at the gas pump, but some oil service companies are seeing nothing but green. By 2008, oil hit $150 a barrel, and it hovered around $100 a barrel for several more years. Right, right. That's the piece of it that no one can properly predict, and people who pretend in retrospect that they saw it coming didn't at the time. There was no, it was not part of anyone's projections. And so 
the boom. Investment dollars poured in. People flocked to Fort McMurray to work in the oil sands from all over Canada, from all over the world. There weren't enough places to live, or cashiers at the grocery store, or servers at the restaurants. And if you were coming out of trade school, the uh, companies active in the oil sands were, were basically hiring the entire graduating class every year. I mean, it basically, if you wanted the job, it was yours. The wages would be two to three times what you would make at home. And today, there's about four times as much oil coming out of the oil sands as there was in the year 2000. The riddle that had confounded Alberta for decades, how to squeeze precious oil out of the sticky, sandy, difficult-to-work-with goo and make money on it, had been solved. The clockwork operation of an oil sands mine is pretty solid from an engineering point of view. I mean, they aren't running into these unexpected hurdles that they once did. But figuring out how to make the oil sands a viable source of crude created one final challenge. Because the oil sands are landlocked, and they're a long way from consumers. Which means they need a way to get that oil to market. To Minneapolis and Chicago and Detroit, to Toronto and Montreal and down to the Gulf Coast. Remember the pipelines under our feet? That 2.5 million mile long network of pipes that crisscrosses the country? If you looked at a picture of the United States from above and on the map drew a line for every major pipeline, it would look like a big spider web. So this is Michael Weber. And I am a professor of mechanical engineering and deputy director of the Energy Institute at the University of Texas at Austin. He says that web of pipelines has grown over the years because they're generally considered to be the most efficient and safest way to move that oil and gas. But there's been this huge change in the past 10 years or so. What's happening now is that we're producing a lot of oil and gas from new places, including the Canadian oil sands. We need to do a replumbing of the national pipeline network for a couple of reasons. One is we're producing in locations that are different than where we were producing a few decades ago. We're producing in volumes that are different, and we're also consuming in different locations. So that means new pipes, bigger pipes, more directions, more places, that kind of thing. And lately, we've been building a lot of new pipes. In the last decade, we've added enough pipelines to wrap around the globe more than six times. Most of those pipes have been built to carry all the new oil and gas being produced in the U.S. But new pipelines have also been built to carry oil from Canada. Those pipes are part of the world's longest oil pipeline network. It's routed right through northern Minnesota, and it includes the pipeline at the center of our story, Line 3, the pipeline that Enbridge Energy wants to build the pipeline that people in Minnesota are gearing up to fight. Now, companies can't just show up with a map. Now, pipelines have become a rallying point, a battleground in the war between our thirst for oil and the concern about the future of our planet. Now, people are fighting them like never before, over climate change impacts, over the impact these pipelines have on Native American land, and over what people have always worried about with pipelines. Almost always, they leak. This whole area here was just filled with black oil. That's next time on Rivers of Oil. Rivers of Oil is a production of Minnesota Public Radio News. It's produced by me, Dan Crocker, and Julie Seipel. Bill Wareham is our editor. Veronica Rodriguez engineered this episode. And Cody Nelson is our associate producer. He also composed our theme music. Meg Martin is our managing editor of Projects and Podcasts. Special thanks to Chris Turner. If you want to learn more about the oil sands, check out his book, The Patch. Also, thanks to everyone who helped us understand these issues, including historian David Finch and economist Jennifer Winter. 
Also, thanks to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the CBC. They were incredibly gracious, helping us connect with guests in their studios. We've been covering the story of pipelines in Minnesota for NPR News, and we'll continue doing that. If you'd like to follow the developments in the Line 3 story, find us at nprnews.org.